Hello, and welcome back to the Enviro Health Podcast. I'm your host today, Emily Muller, and I got to sit down with Professor Ed Gregg and talk to him about his research in diabetes and cardiovascular disease epidemiology. So welcome, Ed. Thank you so much for being with us. Thank you, Emily. It's a treat to be here. So usually we begin with this question, what are you looking forward to? What am I looking forward to? Well, I've actually just, I've been here at Imperial about two and a half years, and I have found that it takes two years to learn your way around and get your feet under you. And I'm just really excited now because I have, we have big new projects underway that are going to allow me to, I think, tackle the diabetes problem in new ways for me at least, and hopefully new ways and important ways for other people as well. New ways as in you're looking to the UK as opposed to your sort of previous role in the US? I think both. I think that, so my role in the US was to guide surveillance, diabetes surveillance, to influence policies for prevention, right? But U.S. was just sort of a microcosm for what's happening in the whole world for diabetes, right? Mm-hmm. At one point in time, we thought we were the, in the U.S., we thought we were the center of the problem. And as it turns out, the U.S. is actually probably one of the countries that's probably better than average now. So this mm. is a global problem. So all the problems that we were tackling in the U.S. in terms of understanding the dynamics of the diabetes epidemic, what's happening to incidents, to complications and morbidity and how it's affecting all subgroups of the population and what to do about it. All those things are relevant all around the world, except that ultimately public health is such a context-specific problem that you have to bring that aspect in. So one of the things that you asked me what I was looking forward to, I'm excited about the really the mandate and the ability to look beyond the U.S. and actually think about this as a global problem. Wow, that sounds really exciting. I would like to know more about how you sort of found yourself in this field of research. And generally, actually, first of all, how did you get into science? And then how did you particularly find yourself in diabetes? Wow, good question. So I was, how did I get into public health? Why? Well, so at, if you go back 25 years or so, I met one point found myself working in as with a master's degree in in exercise physiology and cardiac rehabilitation and found myself working in a diabetes treatment center and as i worked there i started reading the literature and becoming actually more interested in what was happening at the population level around the world and that was what really sort of inspired me as i thought creatively about the problem and then that led me to go get a PhD in epidemiology. One thing led to another. I got a position as a staff epidemiologist at the Centers for Disease Control in the U.S. in Atlanta, Georgia, where I started working basically in the diabetes problem for the U.S. and I spent 10 years as, a, as, a, as an epidemiologist. But gradually I found that for me, and I think is the, the case in general, is that epidemiology is sort of a core science for public health. So I found myself drifting more into how we use our science to affect health policy and prevention, how it integrates with economics, how it integrates with behavior and, and, and everything that goes along with it. So, And then after uh, 20 years at CDC, I found myself, thankfully, right here in London. I always find it really interesting with people's sort of career trajectories how sometimes it can be a sort of chance encounter and other times you know somebody really has this ambition goal and sort of heads towards it at every single possibility at every single opportunity would you say that for you there's been been moments where it's really like it could have gone one of two or three or four or five ways or have you very much sort of had your eye on eye on where you wanted to go i would say for better or for worse, I've been one of those people who've sort of jumped at the chances and opportunities that come in front of me, but I haven't thought that consciously ahead more than a couple years at a time. So, you know, when I remember a couple year, a year after I'd finished my PhD, a one of my colleagues who I'd worked with when I was a graduate student had just gone to CDC, and he was looking to bring people into the unit he was forming, and he gave me a call, and that was something I had never thought about. I was just really lucky to be in the right place at mm-hmm. the right time. And I jumped at that, even though it meant taking, at that point, leaving what, what has been a, a new academic job. And then a number of years later, I would say that the same thing happened again when I came to Imperial. 
I had been thinking for a while that um, at some point after working at CDC, I would try to go and, and find a great spot in, in, in an academic setting, but I didn't really have an idea what that was. And then I had colleagues here that, that helped helped to make that happen for me to come to here. So just really a couple times in my journey that I've had nice opportunities put in front of me and I've jumped at them. So given your work at CDC and sort of this really, you know, complex public health policy prevention, what would you say are some of the most challenging and rewarding aspects of, you know, being in this multidisciplinary arena where you have to really bridge together, like you were saying, economics of it all the health elements of it all what would you say you know if for somebody that wanted to step into that sort of role what would you say are some of the most resilient sort of characteristics you might have to nurture and things you might be able to avoid to just not get into too much heat I I guess I would say that one of the things is that when you're a graduate student, you're kind of working through this notion that there's this field of study that you're supposed to master, and then you feel this pressure on yourself to, to achieve this certain level of knowledge and skill. <laughs> and now I realize, looking back after many years, is that things are changing all around you. You can't possibly, I suppose there are brilliant people that can, but I felt, I realized that I couldn't possibly understand and master all this all the stuff that actually we need to use to advance in science so it's constant we're constantly learning how to apply new areas and integrate them with what we do and that's i think what how i think that's how the most effective people actually really work they're not they're recognizing that the way we get things done is with other people and through other people and through actually skills that we don't have and we may never have, but the key is how we understand how to put them together. And so when I was at CDC and I was realizing, wow, I'm going to have to step beyond epidemiology and understand how what health policies and economics is all about, now I'm in another sort of setting where I'm also having to learn sort of how we apply new methods that are just are way beyond the things that I was trained in, how we put them to use, how, how we work with new data systems, how we work with different people. It's, it's, it's just it's a constantly evolving role where we're constantly having to do that. Mm, that's so interesting. Especially when you're saying, you know, you're in a new role where you're having to learn. I think sort of this, something that I definitely struggle with and I'm sure many people do is like, continuing to learn you know and sometimes when you think oh I should already actually know this like I should be informed in this thing and sometimes that can actually like prevent you from actually acquiring the information that you need to do so what would be some of the the ways that you've learned to just like continually be a learner well I guess that for one thing, I think we, we, we have these sort of ebbs and flows and waves in our work, right? We have times when maybe we're, we're really, creativity is really moving, we're really energized, and then other times we feel like we're, we're in a lull. And maybe that's partly because of the things that are being the demands on us, right? And that we have those waves going all the time. And I think that in one sense, it's okay to accept that, and that's sort of normal that you can't just be going full steam all the time Mm -hmm. and that there's sort of periods of rest that allow you to recharge and and actually kind of push yourself further but I think that probably the most important thing is really kind of recognizing that that well at least for me the reason we we choose this these sorts of a field like this is because we can continue to learn through through an entire career in life and I think it would actually be pretty boring if if we got to the point where we had figured out how to do everything and then we're just doing it. We have, relatively speaking, some periods of time like that when we're getting in sort of a, more of a routine. Mm-hmm. But I, I guess I've kind of feel like if we find ourselves in that for too long, then we should be asking ourselves what we're doing. Mm-hmm. Okay, and in this sort of similar vein of advice, what are some of the best advice that you've received? Well, okay, let me think about this. <laughs> going back a ways, I remember some of the earliest advice was never give a rough draft to a group of experts. But it turns out that over time, <laughs> so I still apply that to some degree, right? But after a while, if you take that to an absolute, then you don't get anything done, right? 
<laughs> so I don't believe in perfectionism. I think that perfectionism is sort of uh, it. It ultimate binds us up if we're if if we adhere to perfectionism too long. So th- that's a bit of a digression. It's a way not to meet your deadlines. Th- that's right. Um, there's some there's some funny and cynical advice I've gotten, but I guess that that the, the, probably the advice I wouldn't say this is advice, but my some of my the models that I've had or the idol uh, not the idols, but the, the the people I've really admired that have that have affected me are people that are not afraid to fail with what they do. They can they can handle taking some lumps now and then, and in fact they actually do fail. You know if you if you were to sort of quantify things and look at the if you could break up the, the the things that they do and try to do into into numbers you would see there's a proportion of things that go great and mm-hmm. other things don't go so well but in the end they have far more of an impact on what they do in their work and on people around them by taking that attitude that well we're always going to do our best but you're going to fail now and then that's okay mm-hmm at least even give it yeah. a shot or many shots. Yeah. And well, the other thing is, is, is I've noticed that sometimes people don't. They, they, <laughs> never mind. I'm not going to go. There. <laughs> Should we take it off? Should we take it offline. <laughs> I was going to say sometimes people don't. People don't. In the end, people don't even realize they failed. I love that. <laughs> is that a good thing or is that a bad thing? <laughs> You know, it's like when you're on the inside of something and you realize that this colleague of yours who went out on a limb, went for it, and really blew it, right? But the outside world never really knew. Mm-hmm. And I suppose that it's all about your perception. Maybe if you're looking at, at you know, at, at the weeds, you have a different, you know, a, a different interpretation than if you're looking at the big picture. Mm-hmm. So. Other people not knowing and them not knowing, slightly different. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so let's let's unravel sort of your area of expertise. Okay. So you in your previous hat you were deeply involved in the care prevention and treatment of diabetes in the US. Yes. As an epidemiologist. So essentially, if I can say this, examining trends in population health scientifically, examining trends in population health to identify and prioritize best policies to prevent and control diabetes. So how many people have diabetes, first of all? What proportion are type 1 and type 2? And what is the difference between these? I mean, in general, diabetes is either an inadequate production of insulin or it's an it's, it's inability to use it efficiently. So it's insulin resistance. And at this point now, about 10% of the adults in the world have diabetes. So it's one of the most common chronic severe conditions that we deal with. That's why it's considered a public health problem. So if you think of about 10% or 1 in 10 adults in the, around the world with this problem, it's a huge problem. Of that population, 95% of them roughly have type 2 diabetes, which is inability to, it's a combination of inability to use insulin efficiently and also produce it. About 5% have type 1 diabetes. Um, and it presents a problem, of course, for, for care, but also diabetes does its damage over time by affecting many different organ systems of the body. And in some countries, it's the most costly condition for health systems to deal with. It's an enormous cause of morbidity and mortality. So, you know, this is, and, and at the same time, most aspects of it are actually either preventable or manageable. So it's really a classic public health problem. Mm-hmm. So as I mentioned, you've, you've been really involved in monitoring the trends in the past 30 years. So I sort of want to take a historic perspective, starting in 1994, when diabetes was deemed an epidemic in the US. What was believed to be the driving factors in the burden of diabetes on population health at that time? Sure. So interestingly, so in, at about that time, compared to now, prevalence was actually quite low four or five percent, maybe six or seven, I can't remember exactly, but it was probably half of what it is now. And it was really seen at that point as a complex clinical problem, right? The, the, the main problem that was seen is that people with diabetes had a huge risk of developing complications and they weren't getting the, the care that they were, that at that time was 
you're starting to realize was important. So that if you manage glycemic levels, levels of blood glucose, you manage blood pressure, other risk factors, you can have a big impact on whether people with diabetes go on to, so that was real, going to develop complications. So that was seen as the problem. It was not at that point, although epidemiology had kind of shown that it was lifestyle was a prominent factor, it had not been established that you can prevent diabetes at that point. So, when, so the public health response to diabetes was all up at that point largely about how do you care for the problem. And then it was about five or six years later that more in evidence in the first studies of prevention came about. So then the idea of preventing diabetes through risk factor management, through interventions came about. So then it really became, we started to think about diabetes as a, as a problem with sort of two big pathways where we could try to tackle preventing the problem, but also preventing all the complications and, or, or the morbidity that follows. Mm -hmm. But along with that, I think that, you know, there's a lot of dynamics, a lot of interesting waves and new aspects of the epidemic itself that have happened since that time that go above and beyond just the increase in prevalence that we've seen. Great. So, as you mentioned, it's from around five or six or seven, and we're up to 10. Probably back in 2010, it wasn't so high. So we're seeing this increasing prevalence. But as you just said, it's there's more nuance. And the picture that you've been painting actually sort of breaks this down into different complications and the distributions across the age, age group. So some of your work from earlier in this decade, that feels so strange to say, <laughs> um, in the New English Journal of Me Medicine, shows decreasing rates of complications within the diabetic population. So complications, first of all, when we're talking about complications, what are the most typical complications that we see with diabetic patients? Let's just start there. Sure. So, well, traditionally, they divide complications into macrovascular, or the big the big blood vessels that affect things like brain. So we're talking about heart attack, myocardial infarction, stroke, the peripheral vascular disease, basically the, to the extremities, that that in combination with neuropathy, diseases of the nerve endings, affects risk for amputation. And then you also have lots of effects on the microvascular, the smaller blood vessels that affect things such as kidneys and influence risk for end-stage kidney disease or need for, for dialysis or transplantation. And those are the classic problems, but it turns out that diabetes affects other, other problems too, such as risk for dementia, disability, even cancers. It really has a very broad effect. And when we talk about sort of dynamics and changes of the problem, one of the things that's happened over time is that while we've Public health has done a better and better job of preventing people from dying from cardiovascular diseases. This has basically allowed people to live longer, including people with diabetes. So people live much longer with diabetes than they did just 15 or 20 years ago. Mm -hmm. But it doesn't mean the rate of complications and morbidity is, is necessarily slowing at the same rate. In fact, for a if lot anything. of those, it's actually the same, the same rate or even an increase. So what you what we have is essentially people have more time to accumulate problems and potentially so now multimorbidity is the a growing concern for diabetes is that living longer, more time to accumulate more conditions. That's sort of one process and epidemiology is happening. The other is that we've had this generational issues, really the most well if you go back the last couple generations, the young adults were the most obese children at, their, at that point in time. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And so now we have a growth and an increase in type 2 diabetes mm -hmm. in youth. Now, usually, traditionally, or usually the median age of development of type 2 diabetes is in their 50s, right? But now we have an increasing many more, the prevalence and incidence of type 2 diabetes in people in their, in their 20s and 30s and 40s is, is much greater. And so you have a situation where with a condition that does its damage over time, and you, you start the clock so oh, early yeah. in life, mm -hmm. then you have another, 
another way that basically this set, this wide range of complications can form in a population. So sort of two different ways that we're having this. It's sort of mind-blowing to me, like from the perspective of just biological organisms, that it, this is just insulin at the root of it. And then, you know, cascading down, it's just this plethora of complications. And I can see why it's so important to, to sort of address. So you mentioned people living for longer. What other treatments in care and risk factor management have been either increasing lifespan or reducing the risk of complications? Sure. So as much as I've described diabetes as being a, a huge global public health problem, it's actually been a story of success in a lot of ways too. So there's, a, there's been successes and failures. And, and I mean, the successes are that actually the rates of complications, if you compare it to 1995, are, are half what they were at that point. So they really decreased overall. And the reasoning for it is thought to be due to lots of reasons, actually, that care is improved, okay? So levels of the glycemia, the attention to it, the, the options for physicians and healthcare systems to manage glycemia, the understanding that controlling blood pressure and cardiovascular risk factors can make such a such an impact and all of those things plus then what happens at level of care after people develop complications is improved so all of those things have led to general improvements for for many complications and then at the same time you've also had new evidence about the impact of lifestyle and potentially medications in terms of preventing diabetes itself. So you've had those positive trends happening in general. The problem is that most big problems in, in public health, maybe like we're seeing now with COVID-19, you can't take your eye off the ball. And, and, and so we see resurgence of certain problems, not necessarily across the board. Sometimes it's certain perhaps high, um, subgroups that, that drive it, but depending at, at least in the US for example there's been a bit of there's been a resurgence in some of the complications after all those big ben improvements and over 20 years now there's there's been a bit of at least in young adults that's turned back the other way the last 5 years we're looking at that in the UK it doesn't seem to be the case in the UK but in the UK there does seem to be a slowing of the improvements that happened as well which is maybe so, sort of the US 5 or 10 years ago. It could, could be. That sort of pattern. It, it could be. The UK, fortunately, does not have quite the same levels of diabetes as the US. It's a, it's a couple percentage points lower, but the general patterns are the same. And the, 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 the fact that there are subgroups of the population, vulnerable groups that, that are at much greater risk, and that anytime you look at the average in the population, that can be hiding a lot of variation. And so... You see that in the UK as well, and that's sort of part of what we've been doing, or I've been doing since I've come here, is to try to understand to what degree are these trends that we saw in the US, are they playing out in the UK and in other countries of the world? What sort, sort of patterns have you seen in these subgroups, whether like by race or by spatially, where, where you're starting to uncover things which an epidemiologist would uncover? Sure. Well, so... Some of our, with diabetes and its complications, there are certain race ethnic groups that definitely have higher risk. In the U.S., for example, Mexican Americans, African Americans, and, and Asian Americans as well tend to have higher risk of diabetes than, than Caucasians do. Now, the risk of complications, though, tend to, to vary a bit. So African Americans have a higher risk of amputations and renal disease. But Asian Americans do not carry that that extra risk. Now, if you look in, in in the UK, what you have is you have there are many more South Asians in in the UK. There's clearly a high risk of diabetes in South Asians. You see that in the US as well. Mm -hmm. But you don't actually have as good data to study it in the mm -hmm. US as you do as we do here in the UK. So there's big race ethnic differences that if, that that affect different aspects of the problem in different ways. But in the U.S., and I suspect in the U.K. as well, poverty and aspects in the environment are 
actually more important. I mean, they, they certainly interact, and if everything is held equal, yes, have those certain race ethnic groups have higher risk, but if you, for example, if you go to the U.S. and you look at the counties and the places where the real diabetes belt is, the driving factor is not race and ethnicity. It's actually poverty and income and aspects of the environment. So when you say aspects of the environment, is it to do with sort of, you know, physical activity, pollution? Is that also in any way related? It could be all of it. Well, so the epidemiologic studies tell us it's all that. It's education, it's income, it's, it's, it's physical activity, it's quality of the diet, it's access to healthy foods rather than, rather than junk food and all of that. Which of those factors actually explain why places of high poverty have such higher risk of diabetes isn't totally clear. Could, you could argue as well as a combination of all of that, but um, mm. unfortunately we haven't, haven't really seen interventions and, and programs that effectively act on that to change it, to then change risk in those communities mm. very well. And I think that's sort of one of the big gaps and, and maybe weaknesses in the science actually. You know. mm, interesting. What are, or what have been, or what could be some really key preventative measures which could either help to curtail, you know, diabetes as a chronic disease, or can target these populations in particular? So, I mean, you were here last year, potentially in August, where we had simultaneously, you know, eat out to help out and, you know, being reprimanded for obesity simultaneously from from the British government which is you know just mixed messaging generally so I wonder if there's you've s sort of seen an excellent example of this sort of targeted intervention at population or subgroup level good question I think that diabetes is unfortunately probably not going to be affected by a vaccine right I did read that type 1 diabetes, there's vaccine development for type 1 diabetes. Well, could, could be. So that's another avenue that I can't really speak to so well. But I think that when we think about type 2 diabetes, at least as far as we know, there's not going to be a vaccine for it. This is a, you know, it's a, it's a classic chronic or non-communicable disease. And, that it's, and in general, they require multiple factors, right? All working together, or at least in the same general direction. So... I think that the what we really need is probably it would it would nice be nice to see demonstrations of places where you really have a concerted effort with attention to the problem awareness and then tackling and and with an effort and a view that it's a multi-tiered problem okay over over long periods of time so you need to look both at short horizon short-term benefit as well as long horizon and when we say multi-tiered, it's the idea that this is a problem that some things and some aspects we have to tackle by going to people at the highest risk with treatments and prevention that's available. But then you also at the same time need to view this as a population problem. And that with that, your, your horizon, your time horizon for having an impact might have to be, you might have to think of it as a 10-year problem as opposed to um, one year. Mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. you know, as we, right now with COVID-19, we're hoping that we can be done with this. But I don't think that with diabetes under any circumstances would we be thinking that we'd be done with it in a year. So we have to view actually with a, long, a longer view of how we can change environment care for both individuals and population. So when do you think diabetes will stop being a chronic disease? I don't see it happening. I think that uh, in, in the foreseeable future, I think what we are seeing actually some interestingly is we're starting to see many countries with actually declining incidence. Okay. But in those countries with declining incidence, we actually still see that prevalence is just as high. And part of that is a function of, of decreasing mortality. So I tend to think that the, our goals with diabetes are to decrease incidence, but our other goals are to, for that segment of the population that has diabetes, to reduce 
the morbidity and the complications that, that go along with that still are um, still a, a secondary goal that we've got for people to live long and healthy with the condition. Okay, so last Thursday when we had scheduled our original interview, apparently was the 100th year anniversary on that very day, on the Thursday of insulin. Mm-hmm. Um, and just like reading a little bit about it, it's super fascinating. It was like patented for a dollar so people could have access to access to this <coughs> medicine. I suppose, as you were saying now, simultaneously reducing incidence, but also having better quality of life for those people that do have diabetes. Why is insulin medication still so expensive? And is there any way that it it can be more accessible? And maybe this ties into another sort of thing that I'm wondering about is, and you've mentioned Diabetes is a global chronic disease that needs to be addressed across across the world. What are sort of the rates looking like in low and middle income countries, which perhaps access to medicines, that there's a whole different sort of nuance in terms of how much it costs and availability. So is there sort of work going into reducing the costs of insulin? Yeah, so I have to admit this is not an area that I know well, except that I can answer your, your first general question is that in, when insulin was discovered, you know, it was, well, it was actually we, pork and beef insulin was used. And then you, you've had development. So even though, even insulin itself has benefited and the application of it has benefited from, from science to develop a synthetic and now many different other formulations of it. And that's essentially what brings the cost. And at the same time, right now, so while insulin, the application of insulin is improving care, you also have a problem of disparities around the world where you have places where, like you say, cost is a limitation or availability is, is a big barrier. And that's one of the challenges that's, you know, one of the main global challenges actually right now. So I read this one article about a Sort of, it sounds like there's these like really extreme cases. This is random. There's these sort of extreme cases where in the states with me- medical insurance, people literally can't afford to to buy their insulin. I mean, well, it's so one thing that's interesting was so that when I worked at CDC, there were political aspects that I couldn't. If I was doing this, I, I'd be like, oh, geez, I'm sorry, I can't talk about that. You know, <laughs> in other words. But you're not especially, working at CDC Especially anymore. if I was working for the CDC, I wasn't supposed to trash our healthcare system, right? <laughs> Which I've got no problem. I mean, this has actually been one of the most, uh, um, you know, there are a lot of things I like about America, but for a country with, with the wealth that it has, the fact that have such under-insurance or, or basically they have such barriers to getting the great healthcare that exists is, is, is absurd. And that's actually one of the nice things here to see is that, mm. is that you know, it, and yes, there's been improvements in the U.S. in access to health insurance and I, and I, the Affordable Care Act or Obamacare improved that. But I can tell you firsthand it didn't solve it. You know, my 27-year-old artist daughter was uninsured for two years past Obamacare because of things that happen. And so mm. that did not solve the problem. So yeah, the U.S. still has a problem that, that, you, that people go uninsured or they have insurance, but the insurance they have to, it's, it's such an inadequate insurance that it doesn't, that it, it doesn't come close to equating what we get. Doesn't that, okay. doesn't that make you almost feel like disheartened in a way? Because, you know, say if, if the, pro- the problem is 100 and, you know, all of the effort that you put into, like, prevention, you can only ever reduce to, like, let's say, seven. you can only reduce by 70 because there's this fundamental 30 which is built into the structure of the medical system. Yeah. Fortunately, it's not that high. Well, what you're saying actually makes sense intuitively but one of the things we learned from the economists is that prevention doesn't always save money Mm -hmm. right 
you know and so what it comes down to is you if, if we want good health and good health care we do have to be willing to pay for it now we want to be able to we want to pay for for health that's of good value we don't want to throw our money away at in in, in bad ways and, and if we take a long time horizon about and that yes prevention generally is a good a good option but to me the biggest problem the in the U.S. is really a lack of equity. Mm. You know, if you've if if you've got good insurance, you get great care there. It's such an interesting business case because, on the one hand, prevention is sort of like what is the potential return of investment for all of those individuals that will not have diabetes and will be participating in the economy, versus what is the potential return on investment if you maintain like a good quality of life that contributing to the economy. And you're making money from insulin or yeah. from treatment. Well, so you're you are hitting you're hitting on another area that I think the the case for prevention of diabetes economically is 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 strong. I mean, it's really if you over the long term, especially if you if if you look at what diabetes does to the working age population, right? And if you look at the the reason why it ends up being a cost effective to prevent it partly is because of quality of life and 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 what it does to people in the um, working years of their lives but it also because diabetes affects so many different complications that bring a huge cost when they occur mm -hmm. so if you when you reduce end-stage renal disease stroke mm -hmm. heart effects you have a big effect on cost but the other thing is that you, the number of medications that people are on with diabetes is, is, is huge. I mean, to get to get optimal care, once you get diagnosed, boom, you're on. I don't know if you have family members, you see this, they get diagnosed and all of a sudden they've got a whole bunch of medications. <laughs> well, then it's a whole different issue in the UK where then you would imagine there should be more focus on prevention where just the cost of the NHS's magnitudes higher yeah. directly to the government. Well, it is. I mean, I think, I mean, this is sort of the arena of economists that I don't feel qualified to comment on, but it's to say that diabetes is a huge economic problem for the UK, just like it is for the US. And the, 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 the ways that they're going at it in general are the same. They're trying to find effective ways to, to, to prevent it, mm -hmm. and then when people have the problem, to, to to manage efficiently and prevent the complications that follow. Mm -hmm. And in general, things have been improving, and well, at least on the latter, it's not so clear on in terms of preventing the, the. But I think the efforts that are underway are good. I mean, NHS has a has a prevention program, an individual targeted program with good availability, better availability that has enrolled actually as many people as the U.S. probably. Pro, as the U.S. has during this, actually during a shorter period of time. And I think actually that's a really encouraging development. It can't solve the problem by itself. Mm -hmm. You know, you can't expect just to go to, what, what it does is it finds the high-risk people, get some support to prevent them from progressing mm -hmm. to diabetes. That probably will not change the trends and incidents by itself without changing the underlying risk factors in the community. But it is, it is an important step. So this this process of finding high risk, how sort of built into kind of like surveillance systems and like now having so much data available. I know in the U.S. there's a lot of it's related to like insurance, health records, and the NHS. It's all part of one big system. So are we harnessing all of this information to sort of have these? risk profiles for individuals where you literally then are saying okay I've been seeing their progression of various different potential risks or complications can we you know flag it up and say this this person has high risk of diabetes I would say yes I mean the UK is it's been one of the really interesting to me to see how data rich UK is I mean for compared to the US a much smaller country um, it's actually more data, and part of it is because you have a single-payer mm -hmm. system, but I, I don't think it's just that. The U.S. has strengths in data in other ways. 
It's got systems of surveys that are fantastic, and they're really available. You know, you can just download the data, mm-hmm. right? Yeah, for sure. That it's actually obvious. harder. I, find, I found the UK to be more data-rich. It can be more cumbersome and complicated to get at it, but partly that's because it's individual health systems data. So yeah. it's, it's actually detailed information. So, you know, the protections are in place to, you know, to take care with that data. So it's and i think that what what you're hitting on emily is sort of what the new epidemiology is for us it's very it's different from when i when i studied we were basically doing surveys cohorts and trials they were sort of three three areas and and but the idea that health systems data and what we get from our visits of all our you know that was just starting mm-hmm. but that was not the core aspect that was not the core data that we use in epidemiology and now it is i mm-hmm. think that over time that's actually going to be the majority of what we use if it isn't already depending on which ask which area arena of epidemiology you work in but it's still not easy you know it's still not easy it takes you know when you when you trying to dig into and make good science good scientific use of these health systems data sets and when i say that i think that's and then NHS data is an example of that. Mm-hmm. It's it's a mess. It's mm-hmm. re- it's really a hard thing to do, mm-hmm. and I think that's actually where a lot of the methodologic challenges are in epidemiology right now, logistic and 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 methodologic. And so as people are being trained now, that's <laughs> that's their that is their their laboratory. The UK's been doing all of that too. Okay, I, what I'm describing is more of a generational change. So the UK is arguably more of the home for epidemiology than, than the U.S. I mean, we think of this Welcome as Welcome back. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> right? So UK does trials, cohorts, and surveys as well. But what has been overlaid on those, if you think of those as sort of the, I don't know, those are sort of the, the, the laboratories mm-hmm. for epidemiology, right? You've had health systems data enter. Mm-hmm. as sort of another whole nother arena right now you, you design study design is still important though. Mm-hmm. so and, and that's actually where part of the challenge is that you have to overlay study design on that health systems data if you don't all you have is just a big mess of for sure of of, of electrons so. <laughs> <laughs> i just think it's so exciting because it's the possibilities, first of all, across all different diseases, you know, for sort of immediate, just, you know, alert, okay, we need to maybe take this person on a new course of action. But then simultaneously, how you can bring it, it can be brought back to the individual. So continuous blood glucose monitoring. Yeah. And the idea of people actually being able to, first of all, have internal systems which are monitoring and delivering insulin. But even without without that happening automatically all the time, if you can just monitor yourself continuously and have an understanding of this this sort of pattern of your blood glucose and then be able to treat yourself better. Mm-hmm. But simultaneously, what you mentioned earlier was the you said, you know, we've got all these new systems and all this new information, but actually people need a lot of training. So... Well, you've just hit on something that I think is a great analogy. That's the ver- that's you could what you've described is the problem for the individual of information processing, right? Really, body's really complex physiologically, and and now there are tools that can take this and and but e- even continuous blood glucose monitoring is a very is all sorts of information. There's variation there. How do you the individual? There's a challenge of using that information to basically reduce their risk of bad Mm -hmm. outcomes, right? Then you can step back and and look at what's happening with big data, the way we're using, and there's, we we have all sorts of developing methods, machine learning approaches, agnostic and AI to to basically process and apply information data Mm -hmm. at much bigger levels than we ever had before. This is all new, at least new to me. (laughs) Yeah. And... I think actually the, one of the most interesting and fascinating challenges right now is how we apply that. 
And so my early sort of attempts to work with some of those methods are that sometimes we find things that are uninter- we, we don't know how to interpret the data. Yeah. You know? Yeah. It doesn't mean it's not useful, but it means that we have a learning curve for how to use it, for how to use new methods. And um, I think that's one of our big challenges going forward. Definitely. And you even highlighted study design earlier because a lot of the times, you know, the data experts, they're not thinking in the same way in terms of study design. You know, it's more like, how can I throw everything at something and get something back out? So there's so many different players involved. And I guess this is really related to your role at the Abdul Latif Jamil Institute for Disease and Emerging Analytics, JIDEA, mm-hmm. which is pretty exciting from what I've heard about it. I don't mm-hmm. know if you want to speak about speak on that role at all. Sure. So, well, JIDEA, Jamil Institute, is doing all sorts of amazing work in, in, around infectious disease um, responses, about um, disasters, about um, humanitarian issues. I've... I'm, I'd like to think what I'm bringing to that group is more is the focus on non-communicable conditions. But in particular, what I think our opportunity there is to understand the intersection better of chronic conditions and infectious conditions. And traditionally, those camps have kind of worked separately. Mm-hmm. They see themselves as from different causes different solutions, different methods. And we've, but I think actually the COVID-19 pandemic, one of the, one of the good things about it is that it has broken that barrier and that those people like myself who spent years working in chronic conditions and diabetes and obesity and cardiovascular disease and never really got asked to participate in anything in around infections, we got, we, we, we got brought into it and partly because this is a problem that well, this, in this case, this virus was affecting people with chronic conditions much, much more than people without them. So, plus it was affecting all of us in our lives and society. So, but I think that this has made us realize what was tr- true all along is that chronic conditions are not isolated from infection. Mm-hmm. You know, we've already, we already knew that, for example, diabetes has strong, um, is highly related to tuberculosis. There are um, relationships to many infections in terms of the way, for example, what leads to amputations are infections. It's an interaction with other with with the chronic and management of the condition. But so I think that with Jamil Institute and and with other related efforts, we're going to see more. We have the opportunity to look more at how um, in different countries and how globally. Um, infections exacerbate diabetes and its care and vice versa. And then similarly, how interventions can make a difference. And has the rapid mobilization of governments around COVID-19 proved as a good example of how this will be possible? Surveillance, monitoring nationally and globally and the communication taking place between various different institutes across the world. Do you think it's kind of solidifies your faith in this in this new avenue that we're taking i think it's going to i don't know if it has yet i mean it there's what's there's been some remarkable things that have happened in terms of how how quickly for example science responded to covid19 how but i and and how the awareness and attention to epidemiology For sure. and understanding the value of statistics of descriptive epidemiology mm-hmm. actually i don't think we ever would have thought that was the case you know i think never would end but the the average i won't you know i think the the general public is far more tuned into what epidemiology is and what incidents and how and how this is important and how Surveillance is important, actually, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. in ways that they never were before. I think so. I think that's good. I think there's also going to be demands. I think that the expectations for fast data mm-hmm. and for interpretation and action from that data is going to be very different than it was in the past. We used to have this, especially in 
you know, we often would have sort of the, the life cycle of developing a survey and a project would take years. And you know, even, even a surveillance-oriented problem around an emerging, you know, I can remember when we, when, I can remember when um, in the U.S. once we look at CDC and this problem of type 2 diabetes in youth had, had been identified as an emerging problem. They gave us funds to set up a system to understand what the incidence is and, and, and who's at risk and why. And, you know, it, it took several years to put together that. Can you imagine if this was COVID-19 and we, and we says, and, and they said, start monitoring this problem. And they said, well, we'll get some incidence estimates for you in, in 2024, you know? Mm. <laughs> so that, the, the point is that now infectious disease reportable systems are already, so that, I'm, I'm being a bit facetious there because they're set up to be responsive and respond to new problems. But I think that what COVID is going to do is it's going to make us, there's going to be a greater expectation for responsiveness across all conditions. So it's mm -hmm. not just reportable infectious conditions that, that, that are expected to get data that's really useful mm -hmm. for application quickly. That means that there's going to be a lot more funding for any budding yeah. epidemiologists across the world. All right. Awesome. Uh, I would like to thank you so much for joining us and sharing all of your expertise and insights with us. It's been wonderful. Thank you. Thank you. It's been a treat to be here with you.